Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is November 27, 2018. This is episode 2333 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Tuesday, and we are back to our regularly scheduled programming, so this will be a Just Jack show where we take a subject and kind of tear it down and discuss it together. Today we're going to talk about greenhouses. I'm actually calling today's show a new look at the old greenhouse. Um, I am at a point in my life now where I've been through quite a few different options with greenhouses. I've done the Texas Prepper greenhouse. I've done the, the, the flower house pop-up greenhouses. I've done a high tunnel-based greenhouse with plywood ends. Uh, and I've done a custom-built greenhouse that I am somewhat but not completely happy with at this point. Um, the fact that I have never actually been completely happy with what I've built or had built for me, I think makes me very qualified to do this show today. I've learned a lot about what doesn't work well, what I don't like, common misconceptions, and understanding true ROI, of course, that being return of investment when building things like this. So, I mean, you can do things that are kind of hobby-based, fun-based, that never pay off financially, and that's okay, as long as you know that's why you're doing what you're doing. You know, I, I mention sometimes from time to time, I really get a kick out of keeping fish. I've got uh, four fish tanks in my office. There'll be more by, you know, next year. Uh, there'll be at least several more. And some of the stuff that comes out of that fish, these fish tanks in the form of animals and plants that reproduce are, are is worth a little bit of money. But it will never, ever, ever, ever infinity pay for itself. Uh, you can make money in that world if you want to. I don't want to. It's a hobby. I just want it to be a hobby. Um, it, it will, it's, but it's not even a break even. I, I, I get a certain amount of joy from watching these critters and these plants and everything in my office. And when I'm just like pissed off at the world, maybe I made the mistake of watching the news too long or something like that. You know, I, I just sit back and I watch these angelfish, for instance, you know, cruising around and they don't care. They have their own little universe I've created for them. And I paid for that universe and I pay for the entertainment value. Just like I pay to have internet access so that I can view things online and stuff like that. Now, in that case, that kind of does pay for itself because it's an expense in how I do this business. But in the end, most people that pay for internet access do it because they want the service. And you can build a greenhouse or any of your prepper projects like that and, and, and realize that it's on some levels a money sink, but if it gives you enough gratification and long-term uh, return, that's okay. You just really probably want to know that. You don't want to trick yourself into thinking that you've done something that's profitable uh, and it's either break-even or a, a loss leader. And so we're going to talk about greenhouses today in that standpoint. We're going to talk about how maybe something that costs more, even if it doesn't completely repay itself or become profitable, if you really just want a greenhouse and you want what it'll do for you, you want it in your life, you still might be better off spending more money. Or you might be better off not doing a greenhouse at all. It all depends on what you want. What are you trying to do? Right? Now, that's one of the things that people really need to start thinking about with a lot of prepper projects. We're going we're gonna to have this critical analysis with greenhouses today. And I'm not going to try to talk anybody out of it. 
Um, but I'm going to try to make sure the people that are doing it are doing it for the right reasons and for the right investment at the right time and in the right place in their lives and the right part of their plan with their homestead. And they don't think it's going to do something for them, for instance, that it never will. And like I said, we need to kind of look at all of our projects that way and take a more critical analysis of them. We'll be getting to that and a lot of other really cool stuff in just a moment. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is Ridge Wallet, one of our newest sponsors. been with us going on right about a year right now, and I'm very happy with the relationship that we have with Ridge Wallet. Um, they're just an outstanding company. Um, I've, you know, I've been working with them again now for like a year. And I have not had a single person tell me, you know, I, I, I bought something for Ridge Wallet. It wasn't what I expected, and, you know, they didn't take care of me. I haven't had a single complaint. Uh, that goes a long way. What is the Ridge Wallet? It's, it's a way to minimize your life. Uh, instead of carrying a big old billfold in my back pocket, I, I now carry a small um, Ridge Wallet in my one of my front pockets, and I kind of clip it over. It's got a money clip on it, but I keep my cash separately from my wallet, and I always have. I use that clip kind of like a liner lock knife. It stays in my front pocket. It's always there. Um, I did note to my wife, uh, we went to the symphony last week, yeah, or last, this weekend. Uh, yes, Jack does go to the symphony, but just because he loves his wife. Um, for a home for the holidays thing. And, and when I went to, uh, to get my, make sure I had my wallet when we left, I still slap myself in the butt every once in a while. It's, you know, t you know, 35 years or so of carrying a wallet in your back pocket. It takes a while to get used to. But once you do, It changes your life just a little bit. It's just better for you overall, not be sitting on a lump every time you sit down or drive somewhere. Uh, then the other thing is just more compact. It makes you get rid of the stuff you don't really need. And then the big thing, it's shielded so that, you know, it protects you from identity theft. Identity theft's a real thing. People now steal the information on the RFID uh, tags inside your credit cards. In fact, I just had a credit card uh, compromised. And fortunately, because it's a credit card, I'm protected. I'll get my money back. But I know one way it didn't happen. It didn't happen because somebody swabbed my butt with an $8 part off of eBay, which, which can be done. And that meant they got one credit card or debit card, not all of them. And, and you know, right now, I mean, honestly, if somebody gets all of your stuff, even if you're going to get your money back, it can really throw a, a knot in the works, can it? So you want to make sure your identity is protected. You want to make sure that your financials are protected. You want to make sure that you take better care of yourself. Get a Ridge Wallet. It really is all of that and more. You can find out more at RidgeWallet.com. And remember, if you're an MSB member, they do a discount for members of the MSB. Next up today, ButcherBox. I'm so glad to have ButcherBox in my life. You know, this morning I was thinking, i got to make sure Dorothy takes something out for dinner tonight for me to cook. And walked out in the kitchen to get my cup of hollow roast coffee. Looked on my countertop, and I saw my wife had taken out these big, thick, beautiful pastured pork chops. I said, well, I don't need to worry about it. She's taking care of it. And I'm looking forward to cooking that pork tonight. I get pork, chicken, and beef from ButcherBox every month. And the quality of the cuts is such that I'm pleased. And I want to tell you why that's important. My wife, when we go to the grocery store, she will not pick out steaks. She will not pick out meat at all. She won't do it. Because she knows I'm going to look at it and go, eh, I don't know. That's a... I, I'm that guy. I'm the guy that when I'm talking to the butcher... And I'm like, I want two of those sirloins right there. And he tries to grab, no, 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 I got one in the back. No, no, no. The third one and the second one. I want those two. No, no, the third one from me. And the second one, yeah, those two. Those are, turn that over for me. At least the back side. Yeah, yeah, those are, that's me. So I'm picky when it comes to cuts of me. And ButcherBox keeps me happy. If they keep me happy, they'll keep you happy. They'll ship awesome quality meat to your front door 
you know, every month or every other month. You can get a big box, a little box. You can make custom orders. You can add, subtract, do whatever you want. And if you're an MSB member, they give you a discount that's good enough to get you free bacon in every box for the rest of your life as long as you remain a customer. Learn more at ButcherBox.com. Before we get into today's subject, let's take a look at this day in history. We're going to go back to the year 1940, uh, 1940 on this day, November 27th. And it will be a brief history segment, but I just thought it was kind of a cool thing to point out. Guess who was born on this day in 1940? Bruce Lee. Yep, that Bruce Lee. Um, Bruce Lee was just an amazing actor, and he was an amazing martial artist. Um, people have made uh, kind of a big deal that, that Bruce was never a competitive martial artist. He wasn't a guy that got in the ring with people and fought, you know, full contact PKA or something like that. Um, and, and you know, anybody that's an actor, uh, their skill is is maybe exaggerated a little bit uh, or a great deal. But I think the uh, the talent that Bruce Lee had uh, was absolutely amazing. And I would say that it was Bruce Lee more than anyone that made America's young boys want to take up martial arts. I don't think there was a, a kid out there that after they saw Enter the Dragon for the first time didn't go out and tie a couple sticks together with a piece of chain or a rope or something like that and you know then tried at least to learn how to use nunchucks. Uh, I know I did. I ended up, here's, here's my Enter the Dragon story. So I went to my grandfather's garage, as I was fond of doing in, in this time, you know, probably nine years old or something like that. And I found like an old, like, it wasn't a broomstick, because maybe it was like a, a hanging, a wooden hanging rod for like a closet, because it was thicker than a broomstick. It, as soon as I saw it, oh, this will make good nunchucks. And I got his old cross cut saw out and figured out about how long they should be. And uh, I cut two sticks out of them. And then I found some eye hooks. And uh, I found some chain. And then I found some, I don't even know what you call these, but they're kind of like installable chain links. D-links, I think maybe they're called. So it looks like a little chain link, and you, you screw it. It's got like a little screwy thing on it. It opens up, and you can basically make a chain out of them or add to a chain. So I used those to hook to the eye hooks. And I actually got pretty dadgone good with them pretty fast. And uh, so I'm out using my nunchucks, and I'm, like, doing them, you know, the way Bruce does, and between the legs and around the neck and spinning them, and I'm starting to learn how to do all this stuff. And But I'm not really switched on to the fact that since you screw those eye hooks in, you know what I'm talking about? They look like a screw, but they got a little loop on one end. Uh, you screw those into both ends. Well, if you spin those things around long enough, one of them things just might start to unscrew. And so I'm doing that kind of triple-double roll thing when you're going arm-to-arm -arm with them, and all of a sudden, the eye hook in the one that I'm holding comes out. And that nunchuck, other side of it, goes flying, as they will. And when you release something that's been going in a circular motion, it goes in a straight line wherever it was pointed. That straight line... It was right at the window of my grandfather's house. I'm happy to tell you, it didn't break the window. It hit about an inch and a half above the window, put a little bit of a dent in the siding. It wasn't enough to really be a problem. But it did make my grandmother come out, and she was not amused. The old man, when he got home, sat down and talked to me about it. And Being constructive, as old men generally are, with the boy's mischief, 
he taught me about the magic of something called epoxy. So we got a little bit bigger eye hooks and redrilled the other side of them to put them back in, and we epoxied those eye hooks in there, and it became a fairly decent pair of nunchucks until I got a better, more proper pair later on in life. And I think back now about that and go, if it wasn't for Bruce Lee, none of that would have happened. I wouldn't have had that experience. My grandfather wouldn't have had that teaching experience. My grandfather, my grandmother wouldn't have got a shit scared out of her when the daggone thing hit the thing right above the window when she was just inside. She was like dusting around there. Uh, all of that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Bruce Lee, born on this day, 1940, and left us, as far as I'm concerned, way too soon. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. I just want to remind you again, uh, first thing I want to do, I want to apologize for yesterday's show. Yesterday's show sucked. I'm sorry. It did. I, I, it wasn't the worst thing I've ever done, but it was one of the worst episodes I've ever done. Um, I, I don't know what was up. I was really congested with some kind of, something's moved in here and caused my allergies to flare up, which is actually not usually a thing for me. I don't really have that. And, and it was just, I, I thought it was awful. And I apologize. I, I commit to trying to do my best for you all the time, and unfortunately yesterday, the best I was capable of yesterday sucked. What I should have done yesterday, once I realized how bad it was, is run a rewind for you. Uh, I think you'd have been better off hearing a rerun show than hearing that, but hopefully it did help some people, because at least there was some good information, even if not well delivered. Uh, and yesterday I mentioned on that show that Nicole Sauce and I have a new coffee uh, roast out together. It's Jack's Blonde, uh, Jack's bourbon blonde uh, roast, and it is made with it, it, just an awesome uh, Sumatran coffee. Uh, a light roast, and it's bourbon cooled. It's not bourbon flavored. It does some amazing things. I really want you guys to check that coffee out. Nicole, you know, uh, worked with me on that. It is a more expensive coffee, but I think if you try it, you'll find that it's worth it. Um, some of our followers on Instagram got their coffee yesterday. We did, too. But I got it late enough in the day that I didn't get to enjoy my own custom coffee until this morning. But a couple different people uh, on Instagram said it was the best coffee they've ever drank. Um, I think it's something you'll really enjoy. I think it's something you'll hoard but share. Uh, Jack's Bourbon Blonde Roast. Give it a try. We worked really hard on it. Uh, I went through, I think it was like eight samples. So I told Nicole what I wanted. She got eight different beans, roasted them different ways, cooled them with the bourbon, sent them to me. And I went through and took notes and, and got down to that final one and uh, was, was tasting it against a couple others that were pretty good and realized, like, well, you're all out of this one. So clearly this is the one you like best. Give it a shot. Maybe you'll like it too. So let's get into this thing on greenhouses. So I wanted to start out with, again, kind of prefacing this with the fact that I've, I've done this a few times and I've never been completely satisfied. And... Um, I don't know when it's in the cards for me to do the, the, the project that I'm going to kind of lay out today about how I would do it, but I'm not going to lay that project out and say, this is what I would do now, and this is what you should do now. I'm going to say, this is all the stuff that I've learned, and this is why I would do what I'm going to do. And then you should look at your situation, your budget, your land, your goals, your climate type, all of that stuff. And then and there make the decision based on my past mistakes. And some of the things aren't even mistakes. Just, you know, did it work? Yes. Could it be better? Yes. How would it be better? This way. You know, well, does that cost more? No. Well, then why didn't you do it? I didn't know. So it's not even really a mistake. This thing worked. 
It cost about the same as the thing that worked better. I didn't know about the thing that worked better, so I did this. Or it actually it cost less, but really in the end it costs more. There's a lot of things that we learn like that. But what I want to start out with here is the purposes of a greenhouse. And I want to tell you something. I'm not a greenhouse expert because I haven't built one I'm completely happy with yet, so I don't consider myself an expert. Um, and so this show will not be 100% exhaustive, everything that you could come up with in this. I'm sure that if I got somebody that was an expert at building greenhouses, we could do like a week-long series on greenhouses Do you were bored to tears with it. So if you're if somebody that's worked with greenhouses and you think, oh, you missed this or you missed that, come on over to the blog, thesurvivalpodcast.com or the short link, tspc.co. Look up episode 2333, even if it's a couple weeks, a couple months since I did this episode. Get down in the comments and give me your advice. And we'll continue to, you know, maybe we'll do a part two if there's enough feedback like that. Or if it's not a lot, maybe we'll do a section on a feedback show dedicated to additional things with greenhouses. But so when I say purposes, I'm not going to say that these are the only purposes of a greenhouse. I'm saying in my experience and in my time, these are the things that I've observed that are the purposes that I'd want a greenhouse for, or I've seen most people build or construct a greenhouse with the intent to do. And sometimes they don't even know it's what they're doing. Uh, number one, and this is probably the most prominent, starting plants early. So the person thinks, well, what I want to do is I want to make sure that I can start all my tomatoes and peppers and stuff like that that I'm going to then later transplant into my garden. And I think that's a valid purpose of a greenhouse. But just like when I talk about kitchen gadgets and stuff like that, I, I talk about how I don't like one-trick ponies. I don't like things that only, you know, single-use things. I like things that are multifunctional, multi-purpose. And sometimes to get something done... The only thing that does it well is a really purpose-built thing that's kind of a one-trick pony. In that case, you settle for that, right? Um, I don't think in this case that that is probably what you would want to do. If you're only putting in a greenhouse because you want to start plants, I would suggest you consider a couple other options. So, And I also want to kind of at this point point out that like I'm talking about greenhouses for homesteaders or gardeners. I'm not talking about somebody that's uh, running a for-profit half-acre market garden or somebody that maybe is going to be running you know, a quarter, half-acre uh, market garden type operation. You're, you're going to farm under, you know, in high tunnels or something like that. We're talking about something that you're going to build over a couple, three weeks or maybe over a month. It's going to be a long-term part of a homestead, farmstead type situation for the average person that would listen to this show. Uh, going beyond that, you're getting more specialized than I want to get today anyway. So th when I say starting plants, I'm not talking about a person that wants to start you know, 10,000 plants. If you want to start 10,000 plants, you might very well want a greenhouse for it. It's kind of okay that that's the one thing. That you're, and it probably won't be if that's the case as well. Um, but if all you wanted to do was start plants for the average garden, you, you got, again, start doing the ROI here. If you're going to start peppers and tomatoes and stuff like that, you know, one of the things you would even consider is, well, what would it cost me to just buy the plants every year? And then if I build this greenhouse and that's all, if that's all I'm going to do with it, then, well, how long will it take until I pay for that greenhouse? Also considering any electrical usage, water, and time. And you might find that, hey, really, 
with the number of plants I want to grow, it doesn't make sense to even worry about this. I just better better off buying them. And that has to do with what you can get, what's available around you, the quality of what you can get, a lot of other things too, but that's one thing to look at. But let's say that you say, look, I, I, I plant enough every year that it's worth investing something in this. But we're still talking like 100 plants. Well, you're probably, if that's all you're going to do with your greenhouse, you're probably better off without a greenhouse. You're probably better off building or buying an indoor rack plant starting system. You know, some of TA lights or LEDs or something like that, or building your own and setting that up. If you have, especially if you have a space indoors somewhere, a spare bedroom or something like that, over the corner, you know, you can have five, six shelves and you can start hundreds of plants. They're indoors. When you're not quite ready to put them out yet, and that last hard, serious, late freeze comes in that's going to even kill stuff in your greenhouse, you don't have to worry about it. You have no insects to worry about. You have complete control of the situation, and you can probably do it for less than even a relatively small greenhouse. Now, if you get a professional pre-made system like this, you can easily spend $1,000, But you're not going to build a substantial and decent greenhouse, in my experience, and we'll get to why not soon, for much less than that anyway. The advantages of that indoor system over a greenhouse that only is for starting plants are pretty big. Number one, it's easy to take with you if you move. Number two, it doesn't take up any space outside. Number three, when you're not using it during part of it, it's easy to put away if you don't want to leave it there. Number four, if you do leave it there, you can start different types of plants all year long with it without worrying about switching to shade cloth and things like that. And then last, it's if you ever decide you want to get rid of it, they're pretty easy to sell. There's a lot of people that want them. They are relatively expensive. So if you take good care of it, you can have it for 10 years, end up selling it for about half of what they sell for today. And might even get your money back out of it or have used it for you know a, a half or a, a quarter of the price for the full duration of the time. I'm not saying there's no disadvantages to them. You know, you can only grow stuff so tall before you outgrow the system and things like that. But but they're, they're pretty damn nice. Uh, either self-built, which is a cheaper way to do it, or professional pre-designed systems, which are probably a little bit more efficient, certainly go together faster. The other thing is your time and maintenance. With a system like that, and I'm not talking about watering plants. I'm talking about maintaining the, the thing itself. Um, about the only thing that can go wrong is a light bulb burns out, and you have to change a light bulb. If you can't change a light bulb, you ain't growing plants, man. I'm telling you. like, And you certainly ain't building a greenhouse. So I think changing a light bulb is within the capability of anybody that would be using this in the first place. Or maybe have a light fixture actually go bad, so then you just replace that fixture and put the bulbs in it. Where when you have a greenhouse, stuff breaks. And we'll talk about more of that in a minute. But I'm just saying, there's a, there, it, it's not like you just put it there and it just stays there forever. It, it doesn't really work that way. Another reason people do greenhouses is to grow through the winter. They actually want to grow crops during the winter. I think that's a valid use of a greenhouse. I think that you immediately have to think larger. You have to think about the specific type of crop you're going to grow in the winter based on your region, but you're going to go more toward fast turnover leafy greens to make it worth doing. If you want to grow peppers in the winter, we'll get to how to do that later. Um, but it's probably, you, in, unless you build an insulated greenhouse, you can close up, and we'll talk about that too, with some supplemental heat. If you're in somewhere you know north of me, 
your peppers and tomatoes will probably die in your greenhouse. I don't care how good you think it's going to be. Again, I've had experience where that's the way that it works out. So growing through the winter, that's another reason. But again, we got to think about the right crops, the right situation, and some other stuff that we'll talk about as we go through today. Another one, though, is holding food crops through the winter. Now, what's the difference? The difference is we're going to grow all of our vegetables that handle the cold well, stuff that maybe would die from a freeze, even in a greenhouse, um, as a baby, but as an adult, it won't. Things like kale and stuff like that. A lot of these plants in cold greenhouses, okay, they're not heated in any way, they're not overly insulated, they don't have any geothermal battery, etc. They're just a greenhouse. And when the sun goes down, the temperature ends up in the greenhouse pretty much the same as it is out of the greenhouse, except it's, it's sheltered from wind and snow and ice and stuff like that. A lot of stuff that will handle those uh, situations, again, coal crops, leaf crops, etc., during the winter will grow hardly at all. They'll grow very, very slowly, but they'll almost be indefinite in their ability to stay fresh and store. And a lot of people that do this type of growing up in New England and northern regions, this is what they're actually doing, even if they don't think about this is what they're doing. If you look at like books like by Elliot Coleman on Four Season Gardening, really what he's mostly recommending is you know, growing your plants into a state where they're ready to, to slowly harvest over time. And they do grow a little bit, but you're not really planting anything. You're just kind of like harvesting that stuff that was planted in the fall through to spring to where you can plant new stuff. That's another reason people would, would want a greenhouse. Um, next would be protecting tender perennials. Assuming you build a more robust, somewhat heated, uh, well-insulated, something you can close up, kind of transformer style that we'll talk about, um, it's very feasible that you might have a greenhouse that, you know, at a certain time of the year, you get a, a hand dolly out and like you would move a refrigerator with and you take some citrus trees and stuff like that and stick it in your greenhouse. And maybe use it for that and, and overwintering uh, other stuff and for starting plants for the spring. Now it kind of makes a little more sense to me. I don't know that you're going to get a positive monetary ROI from just that, but there's something to be said for having a Meyer lemon tree and a key lime tree, right? Maybe a, a kefir lime or something like that for the leaves and stuff like that. So that would be another reason. Now, if that's what you really want to do, if you live in a relatively stable southern climate where you get a few heavy freezes to, to significant frosts a year, you may be better off taking that hand dolly and wheeling those trees into a garage or into a spare room of your house than building a greenhouse. But it would be one function a greenhouse could perform. Another one would be to combine with other systems. This is what I did, for instance, with aquaponics. The heart of my aquaponics system is in a greenhouse. This makes it much more stable when we get freezing weather, much easier to just throw a couple stock tank heaters in my IBCs, shut off the circulation, everything outside the greenhouse, and it doesn't freeze up. And it works well for that. And an aquaponics system with significant water storage, as that water warms up on warm, sunny days, it does help stabilize the temperature inside the greenhouse, but only to a certain level. There's other ways that we might do this. This would include, like, if you have a house with a south-facing wall 
And no one that says you can't do it, whether it's a spouse or the city or the county or whatever, building a long greenhouse on that southern wall makes so much sense. Because now we're building up heat in there during the day that's being shared with the house at night, and the house is radiating heat back in over, you know, over the night. The house is actually radiating heat back into the greenhouse. And there's ways you can enhance that, but if you just do it, that happens naturally. And, and I'll tell you how significant it is. There's mornings I'll take my little E-Tech City thermal thermometer gun. She's a little red laser. And it's really great to play with the cats with. It's an expensive cat toy is what it seems like it is sometimes. But you go outside and you shoot this thing, it'll tell you what the surface temperature of whatever you shoot with the laser light is. And I'll shoot the concrete on my porch, which is not closed in. It's covered but not closed in. And it might say something like 41 degrees. And then I'll walk out past the concrete to the, the, the ground, the dirt, and shoot that. It might be something like 32 degrees. You know, 9, 10, 11 degrees variance. I've seen it many times first thing in the morning. That is the, the thermal gain of the patio, the house, all that solar radiation that goes in there all day long, you know, retaining itself like a battery through the night. Now, if you actually close that in, that effect is magnified. And that's why there's this thing called a wall peony. We'll go ahead and get this out of the way. Everybody has this, this, this post that's gone around a million times of the drawings of this wall peony. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's an underground greenhouse. And it's like this. They show this big, giant, huge excavation and glass roof and people in there drawn out, picking tomatoes in the middle of winter and snows on the outside and all. You know... <sighs> There is a case to be made for underground greenhouses. There's a case to be made for greenhouses simply goes into the ground a certain level, back recessed into a hill, etc. And you might come across the perfect opportunity to do one. If you do, go ahead and go, go nuts with it. Because there's nothing cheaper for a wall than dirt. So if you can make that work, I'm all for it. I think that it's a, it's more a pipe dream than a reality. It's not that it never works. It just don't work as easy as people that want to sell the idea say that it does. But the greenhouses I've seen do the most real growing, and especially when you start growing citrus and things like that through the winter, like the one in Nebraska that's pretty famous, they're almost always attached to a house. And we're going to heat that house, and that house is going to have a certain amount of thermal loss that's going to get lost into that greenhouse, and that's going to help. Then that greenhouse is going to have a certain amount of thermal gain during sunny days. It's going to go into the house and get radiated back out. So all that stuff just makes it better. So... Combining with another system. Uh, maybe it's combined with a chicken house. There's a lot of ways you can do that. So those are the main ways, not the only ways, the main ways that I would see people using a greenhouse. Now let's talk about the thing that makes a greenhouse different than any other building that you're going to build. Any other building you're going to build is going to have opaque walls and maybe some windows. And maybe not. But it's going to basically be a typical walled structure. What makes a greenhouse different is that a significant portion of the walls are transparent So light can get in. And so we're going to need to determine what material we would want to use to make that happen. The number one thing I see people recommending and going with now, and what I went with with mine, is Tuftex Polycarb Clear Panels. You can get these things at Home Depot or Lowe's. They're relatively inexpensive, and they're made kind of corrugated. They kind of go in and out like a like a, a shell weave, I guess you'd call it, of ripple-type uh, texture. 
they're the same thing in, in non-clear that a lot of people use for like cover a patio or something like that. Another thing people do with tough text is you put it underneath a deck, and then that way when water comes through the deck, it goes down this tough text panel and drains off somewhere else. So if you have a, let's say you have a two-story house, you have a deck above acting as a roof or a patio below. When it rains, water don't just pour through down to your patio. Um, it seems like a great idea. It's not expensive. They make screws that are specifically made to go with it uh, that have a little rubber washer. You put a, a nut driver on a, on a, a, a drill or a, a, a driver and zip, 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 zip. There's a lot of problems with it, though. Number one, I have some, and it's been now repurposed to the greenhouse. It was on another greenhouse. It is a couple of three years old. Um, it hadn't been exactly treated the best, but then again, it's polycarbonate. It should do whatever it's going to do, no matter if you've taken it off or replaced it. It becomes discolored. It gets brittle. And then when you get significant wind where it's become brittle, it cracks and it breaks. It's not completely falling apart or anything. It still works, but I can tell that it has a life expectancy. It's a hell of a lot less than most people would think. And I see all these beautiful greenhouses built with it, and they always look crystal clear and gorgeous. And then I look at my panels that are only like three and a half years old and think, well, that's what those are going to look like in three and a half to four and a half years. Now, maybe being in a southern state where the sun really beats on everything, they age a little quicker down here. I don't know. But my experience with them is such that I wouldn't do it. The other thing is that kind of, you know, scallop design, that in and out ripple design. That's great for water to flow off. That, that's, that's really why it's there. Because this stuff was originally designed to be roofing material, not wall material. But that scallop design's a problem. Because if you have a flat wall and you're attaching that stuff to it, all those little scallopy deals create air gaps. And you want everything as closed in as possible with the greenhouse. You don't want air gaps everywhere. And they make foam, like strips. You put that foam down and it goes right in there, like a glove. It's designed for it. Well, by the time you add that to your construction, you probably could have went with a better material that has a longer life and works better and not had to use that stupid extra thing. And you know, it all fits together sort of, kind of, and it just, it, I'm just going to say it's a pain in the ass. Now, I'm sure some of you are better carpenters than me, but I mean, I did this with help from really good carpenters, and they didn't like it either. I think if it was me, I probably would have gave up and went and got something else. So I don't recommend this stuff. And if nothing else, because it becomes discolored and brittle in time. It doesn't seem to last like they say it does. Now, one time I was at a home show, and there was pre-built greenhouses using a material very similar to this there, but it wasn't crystal clear. It was a little more opaque looking, and it had some kind of fibers embedded in the material. Um, it, from, a, you know, from a standpoint of like, almost look like fiberglass threads inside the, the polycarp. I am thinking that is probably a lot more durable material. When I went to Tough Text's website, and that's T-U-F-T-E-X, it's the most common material that I'm talking about like this, I couldn't find any examples of it, and all of their examples of building greenhouses with the clear polycarb that I have, and I am not happy with it. I'm just going to say I personally don't think it's worth the added headaches uh, for the level of reliability and lifetime expectancy that you get out of it, in my experience. Then there are polycarb panels that are made for greenhouses. 
these cost about 1.5 to 1.75 times as much per square foot of coverage as Tuftex. And they're probably worth it, and they don't really cost much. The premium's not that high when you take out all the specialty, the specialty screws and the, all the other crap you have to deal with with the Tuftex panels. The premium's not that high, especially considering what you're getting. The Tuftex panels are a single sheet of polycarbonate. The polycarbonate twin wall panels I'm talking about are basically two sheets with corrugated polycarb bonding between them, so there's air pockets in there. They, they are much better insulators. They're not great insulators, not as good as you might think, but they're much better insulators. They're also flat, so when you attach them to something, they just attach to it. And it makes everything easier, and if I was insisting on going with a rigid polycarb for my greenhouse, I would spend the extra money, And I know I would get it back on the, the lack of additional nonsensical materials, materials and the lack of additional crap and time and labor that you have to deal with to install the Tuftex. The other thing is, since it's flat and it's straight, if you need to cut a piece, you take a, a, a fine-tooth blade on a, on a, a jigsaw, it just cuts beautifully. The Tuftex, it's, it's a pain in the ass to cut. It vibrates, it cracks, it, it, just, it just ain't as easy to work with. It, it really isn't in my experience. So I would go to the polycarb twin wall panels over the Tuftex. And I'll put a link to these things where you can see them in the show notes so you can see what exactly what I'm talking about. The next are various greenhouse films. Some of this is really thin stuff. Some of it's thick. Some of it's fiberglass reinforced. But this is where we're taking basically a plastic tarp of some sort and just putting it over our greenhouse. These are mostly used in high tunnels and stuff like that. And for those applications, I think they work really well. If you were going to do the Texas Prepper Greenhouse, which is the one built out of the cattle panels, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but basically you build a, a rectangle, and you take 16-foot cattle panels, and they make your arches. Really easy to build that part of it. The ends are a pain in the ass to get everything to made up and be sealed and all. But if I was ever going to build one again, I tried it with the, the Tough Tex panels, and I didn't like it. Was Again, it was just a complete pain in the ass to get it to work. And people do it with like heavy mill painters tarps and stuff and clear painter tarp. And, and they always end up, you know, every season it's blown out. Uh, one season is all you'll get out of it if that. A heavy grade uh, greenhouse tarp, I guess more than film, is what I would look at for that greenhouse. And, 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 and get it longer on each end than it needs to be so that your end panels you can just kind of bring it over and, and, and cover it all down and... It, it, it should work fairly well for that type of design. That said, I wouldn't build Texas Prepper Greenhouse. Uh, a lot of people seem to like it when they came out. I don't see a lot of people with videos going, here's my here's my Texas Prepper Greenhouse four years later, and I still love it. I tore mine apart and repurposed the materials. I'm just saying. Um, <clears throat> we built two of them in West Virginia. They were also torn down and repurposed into chicken tractors. So I just don't think it's probably the way to go. Um I, I like the idea. I tried it. I didn't like the result. I probably would not build a stick-built frame-style greenhouse and use a greenhouse film on it. I probably just wouldn't do it. I'll leave it at that. Uh, the next is recycled windows. It probably doesn't make sense to go down to the hardware store and buy brand new windows to put in a greenhouse, especially for as much open, you know, on the roof and, and south wall and everything that you would want. 
uh, it would become cost prohibitive. Uh, and the other problem is, you know, the windows that you would buy now, even the cheapest ones, generally block an awful lot of the light spectrum that plants actually want. But you can find older windows at like habitat stores and stuff like that from houses that are pretty old that will work. And I've seen greenhouses made, and they actually look kind of cool. You know, there's, you know, 50 windows shoved in the different spots in the roof and walls and all, and they're all different, and it looks very craftsman and, you know, kind of eclectic and all. And I just think it's a pain in the ass, and I wouldn't do it. I just wouldn't. Um, I think if you could find, let's say for your wall, you needed five windows to do the whole wall, and you could find recycled windows with the right glass in them to not block out your beneficial light, and they were all a standard size, and they were all the same, okay, Okay, and I'll talk about how that could work when we talk about structure here in a minute. And okay, but that that would work. But I think if you're fitting together 20 different windows, you're going to hate your life. It's not going to end up the way you want it to be, and you're probably not going to be happy with it. Now, there's something to be said for free. If you can get a whole bunch of stuff like that for free, well, maybe maybe you do go that route. And then the next option, and this is the one the least amount of people are using today, And I think it might be the best option, other than it does have some risk as far as being dangerous if it gets broken. But it's just simple plate glass. And a hundred years ago, that's what every freaking greenhouse was built with. They weren't called greenhouses. They called them glass houses. And just to kind of put it in perspective, you can get two foot by three foot Glass panels for 14 bucks a piece at Lowe's, and that's without shopping around. It's 332nd inch. And yes, you got to be careful working with this stuff. And yes, it can get broken and be quite, you know, dangerous if it's broken. Uh, tempered glass is safer to work with and weighs less for the same amount, uh, size of glass, because you can go thinner for the same effect. But it's pretty affordable, and it's about, in, in my research, one-third the cost of using like a straight polycarbonate uh, square panels. Hear me out on my logic on this. If you use a standard size, let's say 24 by 36, I've also seen 36 by 48 uh, pieces, whatever, you use a standard size that you can buy, if a, if a, if a, a panel gets broken... All you do is you build your wall with your frame, and you glaze the glass in. You put the panel in there, and you glaze it in. If a panel gets broken, you remove the glazing, take out what's left of the glass, and throw it away. You get a new panel, you stick it in there, and you glaze it in. And when I talk about the way to build a greenhouse, in my opinion at this point, you'll understand there's not as much glass going in there as you would think. Because I really think people that build a greenhouse, and when you stand inside the greenhouse, you can see 360 degrees all around you. I really don't think that's the way to build a greenhouse. Because if you have a, a large wall facing north, no light can get in there anyway. And the roof, the half of the roof that's facing north, no light comes in there. And then the side facing east, yeah, some light can get in there for a little while. And the side facing west, some light can get in there for a little while. But where you really get the light from is the roof that's sloped to the south 
and the wall to the south. And on that wall to the south, you're only going to get light from a certain point up. Like two foot off the ground, you're hardly going to get any light to come in through there at all, even with the sun at a low angle. So when you design your greenhouse, and we'll save this, but you may have a lot less clear material going into it than you would normally think you would. And mine, to a degree, is built that way. Um, so with that in mind, let's move on to how I would say to structure a greenhouse. The first thing is plan how big you want it to be and then make it bigger. I have never met anybody that, that has a greenhouse, even one they're really happy with, more happy than I am with mine, that says, gee, I wish it was smaller. You know, it's just too damn big. There's just too much room in here. Um, again, I don't like one-trick ponies. I think if you're only building it for one reason, there's probably a better way to do things. Um, but go big. Next, <clears throat> the cost and work of a concrete floor is likely worth it unless you're going to grow in the ground. I've seen people build some really nice greenhouses, and basically it's a greenhouse with a garden in the floor. If you're going to do that, obviously, then, then concrete floor probably doesn't make sense. But if I had a blue sky budget and I was custom building a greenhouse right now, uh, I would definitely put a concrete floor. That floor would gently slope to its own center. In that center would be a drain, and not a little bitty one really either, a big square one with a plate you can walk on. And there would be a piece of four-inch pipe at the bottom of that hole where that drain is to go out somewhere and if the hole inside got wet it would all go down that drain out that pipe and if I needed to clean it out I could pull that plate off and stick my hand out of that pipe and yank stuff out of it um, this does a lot for thermal gain as well it makes everything easier it just makes everything easier it is not a have to have but if you can afford it it's something that I would consider doing putting in a concrete floor Um, and next, and I was kind of alluding to this already, my view is if you cannot get significant light through a wall or a roof, don't use transparent material. Every one of the transparent materials we've talked about has significant loss of heat once the sun goes down. The glass lets the light in, the plastic lets the light in, that warms everything up inside, but as soon as the sun goes down, A polycarbonate panel has almost no insulation value whatsoever, and all of the thermal gain, unless it's got something to hang on to, like concrete or a water battery or something, just shoots right up and gone. And you will find that you can have a greenhouse and look at the thermometer in there, and it might be 80 degrees in there, and it's 40 degrees during the day. Nice, cold, but sunny day. You might have 40 degrees of rise in there, easy, especially if everything's closed up. Sun goes down, temperature drops to 24 degrees. You go inside your greenhouse, it's 25 degrees. And in another hour, if it's 24 still outside, it's 24 inside. It's the same temperature. Everybody thinks you'll put a greenhouse in and it's just going you know, you're going to grow tropical fruit or something. Unless you have other means of holding in heat or creating thermal gain, the temperature inside a greenhouse is going to be the exact same as the temperature outside the greenhouse. The only thing you're really protecting yourself from by doing this is you're protecting yourself from the effect of the frost fall and settle on the leaves and from wind and from ice and from snow. The actual temperature will end up being the same unless you heat it or somehow otherwise uh, deal with that. 
And I think a lot of people really do not understand that. So when you start putting in insulated walls, you start to change that to a degree. Uh, the next thing I think we need to do, you need to design your greenhouse for the purpose of maximum you know, solar aspect as far as the light that it can gather based on the months or the dates of November 6th through February 4th. Now, the reason I did that is you have 90 days to a quarter, all right, um, and some change, right? So you might change this to November, I don't know, November 1st to February 7th or something like that. But if you do it November 6th to February 4th, you're exactly 45 days on each side of December 21st, which is your winter solstice. That's the point the sun is at the lowest point in the sky. This is the time when you need the most light into your greenhouse. Even if you're going to throw shade cloth or whatever and you're going to run your greenhouse in the summer, run it three seasons or whatever, the time you need the most light in there is the winter. So you need to think about that. And if an area of the greenhouse might get a lot of light, like let's say an eastern wall in June, it doesn't mean jack diddly crap if it doesn't get that light in November through February when you need it. So make the decisions on how to orient and build your greenhouse. Get the app called Sunseeker. It's free. You can get it. Uh, I know they make it for Android. It's also on the iTunes app store. And figure out exactly where your, your sun's going to be and design around that 1st of November through 1st to 2nd week of, of February. Look, draw, draw a map. Stand there. The, the thing about Sunseeker, you can stand right where your greenhouse is going to be and face where the sun's going to be. You can set a date, and you'll see a line of where the sun's going to come up from the horizon and where it's going to go down. Stand there and understand that, that solar aspect, and you'll realize that about the only thing you really need to worry about is the majority of the south-facing wall and all of the south-facing roof. And anything beyond that probably won't matter much, if anything at all. So now we're going to build a three-walled structure, a half-standard roof structure, with the other half of the wolf roof is some sort of a clear, transparent way to let light through, and most of the south-facing wall that way. Now, again, I think you can build that wall up to about two feet off the ground, Unless you're planning on growing plants right down low like that, where they need, you know, they're, they're going to get blocked out and sh shaded out, uh, I don't think you're going to get much light down there. So I think my greenhouse, we come up like 18 inches of wall, and then we start transparency because of where it's located and how the light gets in. So that's more insulation. And if you do that, I think you'll you'll be a lot happier. Um, if you want to grow in winter, and I mean you actually want growth in winter, you want plants in there in winter that will die if it goes below freezing, I think you really want to consider a true heating ability. Even if you're planning on using passive solar gain and stuff like that, I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, get a decent, inexpensive uh, propane heater and a 100-pound propane tank that you can move with a dolly. And take down the propane place and uh, get get filled, and then you know you can only you only have to run that heat then on the nights where it's gonna freeze and mostly at night when or when you don't have sun, but you have that ability, um, or a small wood stove or I think electric heat 
will just be cost prohibitive. But, you know, if you live in a place where, let's say you're only going to have to do that five to ten days a year. Because this is another thing people don't understand about the South. They say, well, you only have ten days where it froze last year. Yeah, it's still the first time it happened to killed everything that, that doesn't survive a frost. So there are people that it may be the most easy and economical thing is to put in some sort of an electronic heat, uh, space heater or something like that. But for that reason, I really think it makes a lot of sense to make sure that you run power and water out to your greenhouse for other reasons as well. Um, but definitely consider some sort of true heating ability. If you can come up with a way to use geothermal heat, do it. Um, there's something called a solar battery. You can Google it and learn more about it, but it basically works like this. You bury pipe in the ground, and you have pipe low in the greenhouse, and you have pipe high in the greenhouse. And you have a very, very low-watt fan that can run very easily from a single solar panel, an inexpensive one. And all it changes is the direction that, that fan blows. And all summer long, that fan pulls air from the top of the greenhouse down into the ground and warms up the ground, and it exhausts low, and that cool air comes out and helps cool the greenhouse. And all that you do is turn that around in the winter, and it pulls in the low and comes out the high, and it, it, it works supposedly really good. I've never done it, so I'm not going to say that it works. But I learned about this from a company that builds extreme cold-weather greenhouses in Colorado, and it's where I got a lot of ideas for it. I'll try to look that up for you. There's a YouTube video where I interviewed them at a prepper show, and I'll try to find that for you and link to it today where you can see some of these ideas I have come from them. And I may not have explained that thermal battery exactly right, and there's a reason. I can't do it here. I can't dig, I can't dig in the ground enough to bury the pipe to get it done. So it doesn't make any sense for me to do any further research on it because it won't work for me. And, and I don't believe in spending a lot of energy and time learning about something I can't do. So it's something to look into. But definitely if you can do it, go ahead and do it. Um, I think it has a good ROI. Um, for the best results, design your greenhouse to close up at night. So there's a lot of ways you could do this. One would just be with really heavy thermal curtains. They design these for use in homes, and it helps a lot in the winter with losing heat through your windows, so it will work in a greenhouse. Uh, you can design these to be automated or manual, so you have that window in the roof, and you have this panel that comes down, and then you have the front panel, and that comes down, and that's the whole thing's done because the sides and the back are all solid walls and well insulated at this point. Now you've got some. Now you set timers. So that just after the sun comes up and just before the sun goes down, that automatically drops those curtains. And now you can hold plants in that greenhouse through winter that would have died otherwise. Another way to do it is with some sort of a panel that either comes down or flips up on the outside. This company in Colorado, they didn't even bother putting uh, transparent uh, material in the roof. They did everything with SIP panels. And the only place light came in was the south-facing wall and, you know, a little bit up off the ground and all the way to the roof ledge. And then they had these big, basically, like, it almost looked like a bench that came down. And they were coated with, uh, like, a shiny metal, like sheet metal or something like that. 
And they were a SIP panel themselves, so they would come down and hang by like aircraft cables or a chain. <clears throat> the light would come in and hit those panels and bounce in the window and increase the amount of light that went inside. And then at night, you just close that up. And now it's completely insulated. And it's been getting banged with this, this heat and light all day long. And they have greenhouses, they said, over you know 9,000 feet elevation, growing food in the middle of winter. Now, you give up something as far as how much light you can get in there, but you also keep the heat in during the night. And it's very easy to then provide some level of supplemental heat to that if you really feel the need to do so. So in some way, I think that if you really want to get the most out of a greenhouse and grow year-round, think about some way to close this up at night. I think the easiest thing to do is some sort of thermal curtains or something that's on the inside. It'll last forever that way because it's not going to get wet or what have you. It's only deployed during the night, so it's not getting beat on by the sun. It is relatively easy to automate. They have things now where they you know, come down on their own and go up. We've got curtains in my, or I say blinds in my home now. Uh, they're not thermal because we don't really need that, and we do want some light coming through when they're down during the day. But we push a button and they go up, push a button and they come down. And there's nothing that would prevent us from putting them on a timer if we wanted to. But I feel like Dr. Evil in the morning. I come out, I pour my coffee, and I come out and I sit on my couch and I want to watch the birds and the cats try to kill the birds in the front yard. And I push a button and my windows rise and I feel like I'm in my little evil Dr. Evil lair. So I don't need timers on them. But that would be pretty easy to do. You also need to think about ventilation and being able to get airflow through the greenhouse at different times. And this, I think, is where second-hand or cheap windows do work well. What we did with mine is I put... I bought brand new ones because we needed them now, and I was able to get them on special for almost nothing, really. But we put two windows in the back wall, and we put two windows in the side wall. And these were windows from Lowe's. They're the cheapest thing I could get. They open top and bottom, so the top panel goes down or the bottom panel goes up. They lock, and they have a screen. I'm not worried about light coming in through them very much. But during the summer, when I open the doors, I open those windows. I open some down and some up, and I get good airflow through there. Also, that lower part of the wall, we put louvers down there, and we can open those up in the summer so we get airflow through from top to bottom. And this is where I think, again, second-hand windows, et cetera, makes sense. Not trying to do a whole wall of them. Some additional considerations. Number one, I don't mean this literally, but I hope you get the, the metaphor here. Don't put it out in the back 40. You know, and mine kind of really is out. But like I put mine where I did because it was a place that I could put a greenhouse. I just really didn't have another place that made sense for one to be around here. Um, if my house was designed in a way where it would have looked good and made sense, I would have built one onto the house. I, I, I do think that is, if you want the holy grail, being able in wintertime, you know, walk out your door and be outside but still inside and sit down in a chair with a fountain running and birds, you know, have it like an aviary, little birds flying around in there. And have a little frog pond, and then your papaya tree, and your man. That is just, you know, if I won the lottery, I'd build a new house so I could do that. All right? Um, so that, I think, would be the best. But try to put it somewhere when you look out your house window, you can see it. So you don't forget about it. So that you go do the stuff that you need to do in it. On a daily basis, especially considering the time of the year that you need to do the most is the time of year where it's cold and you don't want to go outside. So really kind of think about it that way. Definitely run electricity and water to it. 
With water, you, if you got a close enough hose, maybe you can get by with a hose. You run a hose across the ground out there if you really need to. But, you know, I'd say, you know, after you coil that hose up and unroll it enough times, you're going to invest a few bucks and go down to Home Depot and buy some PVC pipe and fittings and dig you a trench and put a water line out there. Since you're going to eventually do that, run power to it. If you don't want to spend a lot of money, et cetera, and all you want to do is run an extension cord out there so once in a while you can plug something into it to run a light bulb or a timer, get some PVC pipe, bury it in the same trench, do something to mark it, use, use, you know, use gray that's made for electrical. Or if, I did it with regular PVC, and we just spray-painted green paint on it. So if you dug it up, you'd know one from the other. We took an extension cord, cut the end off it, ran it through there and put you know, a replacement construction, uh, uh, extension cord end on it, and I run my pump and my lights in my greenhouse right now that way. And, oh, my God, it's not Dakota. I don't care. If you want to do it to code, do it to code, but think of some way to get electricity out there. Just so when, you, when something breaks in the middle of the night, and it will, you're not out there with a headlight on or a flashlight in your teeth. That alone is worth it. Um, Again, I talked about the Walpinis and in-ground and, and what have you. I think that's a great idea if you live where it'll work. It won't work here, so I can't do it. Uh, I would need a jackhammer to get that done. Um, Mike Ayler, who is no longer with us, wrote the book on underground houses. He also wrote a book on underground greenhouses. I will link to both of those in the show notes. You can check those out if you want to. They're not very expensive. Uh, they're still available, and I think the proceeds go to one of his survivors. I'm not sure. Um, but definitely, I think in-ground if you have the opportunity, is really worth considering. Just don't become enamored with it and don't think it's going to be magic because it's only going to do so much for you. Next, I think you really need to do some calculations on money here. I think you should design what makes sense for you on paper. I think that's something noble for anybody to do, even if you're not going to build one. I think you'll learn a lot <clears throat> by designing it on paper. And it's not going to be a pretty, like an architecture, an architect's rendering or something like that. But these are the basic dimensions and fill out the materials and This is how I do my cost estimates. I basically do what we call in the sales industry a takeoff. You know, X amount of this type of lumber, that, and the other thing. And I go to Lowe's or Home Depot. And if I can do better on pricing, then fine. But for a rough estimate, I plug in all the stuff like I'm going to order it, add it all to my cart, and look at the total. And then I know how much it was going to cost. And once you know how much it's going to cost, add 20% to it for all the things you're screwing up and missing that you're going to have to do on the fly along the way. And then sit down and look at that number. And let's say that number is $1,800. Now, I don't think it's actually that hard to grow $1,800 worth of food a year. I don't think it's that hard at all. But will you be able to grow, and will you grow, $1,800 worth of food more than you would without that greenhouse in how long a period of time? Is that going to pay itself back in five years? Is it going to pay itself back in one? Is it never going to pay itself back? If you're going to have to use electricity or gas to heat, what's the cost of that going to be? How long does that... And actually figure out what the ROI, if it even exists, is or where the break-even point is. Or, look, it's not going to pay for itself. But I don't care. What I want is in January... I want enough room in that sucker that I'm going to go out there and I'm going to sit there and listen to music or a podcast or something, sitting in an easy chair and a t-shirt when it's 15 degrees outside. And I'm going to be in the sun and be warm and I'm going to have that. 
and there's going to be plants around me, even if they're not tropical, and I'm going to feel good. And I'm willing to pay a certain amount of money for that. I think that's okay, too. But I think you need to put the numbers in Excel, like I always say, and figure out, and, and it's not how much money you're going to make off it. It's not, you know, does it make me a lot of money or does it save me a little bit of money or whatever. It's how much does it either make or save me or how much does it really cost me over the next five years. And for what I will get, am I okay with it in that pragmatic standpoint? Because, again, what I'm going to tell you is if all you want to do is start plants, you may do that and go, well, hell. You know, I could build a coal frame for a hundred bucks. And that's easy to provide some supplemental heat on the coldest nights or whatever if the manure pile doesn't work or what have you. And, you know, I'm done. Or I can build myself a rack system for three or four hundred dollars. And I can grow enough extra plants that I don't need to sell to my friends for a dollar a plant to pay for half of it this year, the other half of it next year. And at that point, I'm break even. All I'm out is electricity. And then I can grow violets for my wife in the summer or whatever, and that's just better for me. Or you may find, you know what, to do that, I need to build basically a closet out of greenhouse material on the side of my shed, and on really cold nights, I can throw a space heater in there and heat it for next to nothing because it's so small, and I just need a bunch of shelves, and I just need to use the sun and start some plants, and I don't need a, a actual greenhouse. And you may come up with these other options that are better for you economically. And even if you have the money to do it, maybe that money's better spent doing something else. And so what I wanted you to take away from this show is to start applying that logic to all your projects. It'll make it a lot more likely that you'll be selective, do the ones with the best return. And if you have a reluctant spouse, you won't make them more reluctant. You might make them a little bit more receptive. Um Another thing is keep things as square as possible. I see all these geodesic domes and blah, blah, blah. And you know what? Anybody should be able to teach themselves how to cut a piece of material square. Square material goes together. That's why the majority of homes are square and rectangular. And when I say square, I simply mean right angles. Roofs are worked that way. It's easy to close gaps that way. If you do have a bit of a gap, some spray foam insulation will fill it right in. It's easy to fix. It's easy to deal with. Try to stick to simple square design. Lastly, pop-ups. You know, like the spring house. I had two of them. Don't do it. It's not worth it. It's going to break. You're going to get a snowfall or an ice fall, and it's going to put weight on it, and it's going to break one of those flexible poles, It's going to blow through there, and you're going to be miserable. And you're going, to, you're going to spend more time and energy to throw it away than you're going to get out of it. That's been my opinion with those. Lastly, kind of the greenhouse kits. This may be a way to go. My next-door neighbor has one from Harbor Freight. It's a metal frame, and it uses the double-thick polycarbonate panels. Honestly... I think they paid $500 for it. I think you could buy that kit, throw away everything but the polycarbonate double wall panels, and probably come out ahead of buying the poly wall, polycarbonate panels. I'm not sure about that. You'd want to do the math, but that's an awful lot of polycarb panel in that thing. And <laughs> it might be the most economical way to get your polycarb panels. I'm not saying it is. I'm not saying you should do it. I'm just saying... 
It might be. I, I don't know. It's kind of a joke, but it could be a joke that's true. My next-door neighbor's son put that greenhouse together for them, and it's done on a concrete slab. They had a concrete slab put in. It cost probably two times what the greenhouse get. I think it was, again, like 500 bucks. I think it's an 8 by 10 It might be an 8 by 12 I'm not sure. He said it was the most nerve-wracking, pain-in-the-ass thing to install that he's ever done. And this guy's kind of a handyman. He's done a lot of stuff like that. Every year, I end up finding a couple of the polycarbonate panels in my yard, blown out, especially in the windy winters, and have to bring their panels back to them. They also never use a damn thing. Um, but it doesn't hold the panels in really well. Now, I've talked to people that have done certain things, using like some spring retention clips or what have you, that have that exact greenhouse, and they say that once they do that, it works great. Just understand, out of the box, it's going to be a pain in the ass to install. It's going to need some modifications. And then you're back to this when it comes to greenhouse. Since the entire thing is transparent, it has no insulated value at all, and it won't prevent plants from dying at night when you have temperatures below freezing if they're plants that die when it goes below freezing. And heating it will be cost prohibitive. It can be done, but you'll have to pour so much heat in there to make it work that you would be better off doing something totally different. So I'm not a fan of those types of kits as well. Uh, and the pop-ups, again, just don't do it. My final thoughts here, I didn't want to talk anybody out of this today. Unless you're the person that shouldn't do it. I look at my greenhouse and I think, how can I make it twice as big and what what should I use to replace the panels that I don't like? Um, so I'm obviously not any greenhouse. But when I look at that, I have to say to myself, and what will be your ROI? Are you doing it out of pride at this point? Or do you really think that it's going to do a good payback for you? And I think it can do a good payback for us. But I don't know that it will. I don't know that we'll put enough time and effort into it to make the payback come out of it. I do like the idea of being able to sit in a chair in there. You know, it doesn't, what I have is a little bit too small for that. I'll say go bigger than you think you need. But make sure in all of your, your projects that you're planning on doing in the future on your homestead, again, you give it this pragmatic financial analysis. Um, it's not like a Debbie Downer thing. I'm not saying not to do it. I mean, you know me, I'm a, I love to do all these crazy projects. But I think that we need to prioritize based on pragmatism. We do the things that will give us the best return with the least effort first. And then we build from there. Because you may get to a point where, you know what? I have as much time into doing maintenance and et cetera on this place as I want to put. For the amount that I get in return, I'm happy. I don't need to do anything else. Or the only way I'm doing something else is if it reduces my input on time and labor. And that's a great place to be. What that means is you've maximized your homestead, not for somebody on YouTube trying to impress people with how many pounds they can grow per square foot, but for your life, your lifestyle, and your desires. And that's what we should be doing with homesteading. We should be building our homesteads around our life, not our life around our homesteads, if that makes sense. Anyway, guys, hope you enjoyed today's show. Hope it was better than yesterday's disaster. I kind of feel like it was. It, it felt better going through it. 
I'd like your thoughts on this. I'd like to know, you know, what you'd like to, to hear more about with greenhouses. I'd like your experiences with greenhouses, including the ones that are completely counter to mine. You know, I live in a certain climate with a certain situation. You might live in a different climate with a different situation, have totally different results. I think people need to know that. It never offends me when people say, you're wrong because I did it and this is how it worked for me. That never bothers me. You're wrong because you're stupid. <laughs> that, that's where I tell people to go piss off, honestly. When people have a clear-cut argument, then I want to know more about that. And I want to make that available to this audience so that they can get, gain and benefit from it. I also think maybe we should do more shows like this where we take these homestead projects and break them down. I talked to you about what I've learned over doing them over the years and how to calculate ROI and how to figure out if they're the right ones for you. If you'd like that, let me know as well. Remember, for feedback for the show, for questions, for anything, you can email me at jackofthesurvivalpodcast.com. Just make sure you put TSPC in the subject line. That brings us to uh, how you can help support this show. Now, one of the ways you can do that is just do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. And if you go there, you can see the deals of the day on Amazon. You can see all the reviews we've done in alphabetical order, etc. And you can see the most recent reviews. There's a link for that. You click that, it'll pull up the most recent 10 things we've reviewed. If you do that today... The first one you're going to see is my review today, which is a new item for you. Um, given we've done so many reviews, I do recycle them a lot, but I do you know, try to bring you some new ones a few times a month anyway. Uh, this is a knife, and it's made by a company called Virginia Boys Kitchens. It is an 8-inch chef knife. I'm actually pretty excited about this item and bringing it to you. Um, number one, made in the USA. Most affordable knives that you can buy that are high quality for your kitchen, are not made in America. Um, and, and I like, you know, I'm not a made in America snob. People are like, well, that's made in Japan, or that's made in China. Where's your doorknob made, dude? You know, people are like, everything I buy is made in America. Where's your doorknob made? But your doorknob isn't made in America, let alone everything in your life. So, I, But when you can, I like that. I like small businesses. This is a smaller company, relatively new company. Um, this knife's 60 bucks. And the way I put it in my review, if one of you guys started this company and you made this knife and you sent me this knife and you said, Jack, where should I price this knife? I mean, I'll tell you, it's not a $500 Patrick Royman MT custom knife. It's not. But it's not a $60 knife. I would price this knife personally between $90 and $120. And what I would pay for it and be happy. And I would advise someone selling it to be selling closer to the $120 range so they can do sales, incentives, set up, you know, wholesale agreement with retailers, etc., and not just do on Amazon, that type of thing. But if you bought this knife for $100 to $120 and they sent it to you the way that it's made, that you can get it for $60, you'd be like, that's a great $100 knife. You wouldn't, for a minute, you know, be like, you might not spend $100 on a knife, but if you got this knife in your hand for 100 bucks and you were willing to spend 100 bucks, you'd be happy. Walnut handle, brass rivets. The other way I describe it is this looks, if you think about old hickory knives, the old ones, not the ones they make today for like 12 bucks, the ones you find in a flea market once in a while, like a 75 year old knife. If that knife and a modern, well made chef's knife had a baby, you'd get this. You get this unpretentious, very classic looking knife, like something your grandfather might have owned, but with the blade profile and the quality and the grind and everything, it's like, hey, by the way, I'm a 21st century knife. I was made yesterday. 
It's just a great knife. 420 stainless steel. It's it that 420 is a relatively soft steel for steel. That means it's easy to sharpen. It does dull quicker than a harder steel. I have knives, you know, even other than this one, 420 steel, especially kitchen knives, thinner blade, uh, you know, a a, a steeper profile to your edge, and all I've done is maintain that edge with a sharpening steel. It takes a little bit to learn how to use a sharpening steel, but to me it's way easier than learning to sharpen with a stone or a belt sharpener or something like that. I have knives with this type of steel and similar types of steel. Two years, haven't seen a sharpening stone. will still take the hair off your arm because every time it gets used, it gets cleaned, hit it with the steel, wipe it off, put it away. And if you maintain an edge on a knife like this, you almost, not all, you know, not completely, but almost do not have to sharpen it. Uh, $59.97 with free shipping. And it looks beautiful. If you are looking for a gift for somebody that, that is a foodie that would appreciate something like this, check it out again. Brass rivet, rivet it's walnut handle, full tang, made in the USA, 13 and a half inches overall length, 8-inch cutting blade, just beautiful. Anything at all I can come up with that I would do different if it was my knife and I was making it. I find the handle a little bit thin. Not across the, the spine of, of, the, of the tang, but you know, in the depth, you know, going from the top of the tank down toward the, the belly of the knife. That way. It's a little thin. Not so much that I don't like it. I would just simply have made it a little bit thicker in that dimension. I think most people have probably smaller hands than I have pretty big hands. Um, will actually appreciate it being a little bit smaller like that. Um, again, I, I have a hard time understanding how this knife is 60 bucks. And this is a newer company, and I have a feeling this knife will not be 60 bucks next year. That it will go up in time. I think they probably have, you know, a good amount of investment behind them where they're able to come out and make a name for himself and they'll, they'll probably increase the price of this because I think to make this knife, uh, with labor, materials, et cetera, I think you've, and ship it, I think you've got close to 60 bucks in it. Uh, check it out. I don't think you'll be disappointed. And you can always support us by doing your online shopping at T-SPAS no matter what you buy. It's that time of the year. You're probably buying stuff for Christmas and what have you. So even if it's not this knife, if you're going to shop online, just go to tspaz.com first, and you help support the show. The other way, become a member. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on members. And, guys, membership, that's how we pay the bills around here. More than sponsors, more than T-SPAS, more than anything. Without supporting members, we couldn't do this show every day. It is how I pay my bills. And I thank you, all of you, that have supported me with it. And, you know, I won't go long into it today, but if you become a member and if you use the discounts, a few times a year, you'll get your money back. We're coming into winter. You're going to be starting plants. The discounts I have on seeds and trees and plants and bushes for you will probably pay for your membership by itself. 50 bucks a year is 18 cents an episode. If you think the show's worth 18 cents, and, you know, if you're going to build a greenhouse, I promise you I saved you more than 50 bucks today. So just think about that when you think about becoming a member. That brings us to our song of the day. Um, again, we have this week of this guy, Luca Stricanoli, and I'm probably saying his name wrong as best I can do. Luca, I'm sure I got right. Stricanoli, I'm not sure. Um, this song today he's doing is called Feel Good Inc. And this is uh, by a band like Godzilla, Godzilla or something like that. I, I don't know what it is. It's, a, it's not even a real band. It's like a, a UK-based virtual band. Like all the, 
all the videos are like animated, computer-generated characters that aren't real. And all the music is done with like synthesizers and stuff. Um, and when I looked up the actual song that Luca is covering, I didn't care for it. It's like techno weird vocals and not my thing. His version is awesome. Uh, in, uh, yesterday I played a version for you where he was playing guitar with his feet and had a, uh, a percussion pad on the guitar with a, with a drumstick to do the drumming and all. Today he's playing a, a three, uh, a three fret guitar, um, a six string, a seven string, and a bass with percussion. Uh, and there's times where he is strumming the seven string and using his fret fingers to pluck the six or strumming the six and using his fret fingers to pluck the bass and switching in between the seven and the bass. Uh, you know, I tried to learn to play a guitar. I got pretty good with nunchucks, but um, not with a guitar. Uh, I had a guy that I was friends with in the Army named uh, McAndrew, and he really wanted somebody to jam with. This guy was great acoustic guitar player. And uh, so he, he kept trying to get you know anybody to sit around. He just wanted to have some drinks and play guitar and have somebody to play with. He's like, I promise you, man, I can teach you. Um, after like several sessions where he drank way more than he planned on because he couldn't take trying to deal with me, he finally said, look, you, you can't play a guitar. So when I watch a guy do this, I just think that there are you know levels of, of, of being good at something and then levels of mastery, and then there's level of like supreme mastery. And I feel like in my life I have things I'm, I'm miserable at, like playing a guitar. Or if you all saw the live feed karaoke, not good, right? Uh, there's things I'm good at, though. There's things I'm really great at. And there's things that I am amazing at. And I think we all have those talents. This dude has that level of that, that supreme mastery with music. You need to check him out. Again, his name is Luca Striganoli. I have a link to the video to today's song in the show notes. Check this dude out. And it's a guy that came out and decided he's going to make a living with music by being really good at it. That's an inspiration. I think you'll like this song. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.